and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled Answering the Questions on Which HIV Prep for Which Patient, featuring Dr. Carolyn Chu and Dr. Samantha Strong. Dr. Chu is a physician and chief medical officer at the American Academy of HIV Medicine. Dr. Strong is pharmacist and clinical director of pharmacy at Nevada Health Centers in Las Vegas, Nevada. In this episode, they will answer questions and discuss key considerations when determining PrEP candidacy, choosing among PrEP options, and addressing PrEP persistence for individual patients. For the full online educational program, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Chu and Dr. Strong have to say. Hello, everyone. I wanted to begin today by discussing the current gap in the United States. We have an estimated 1.2 million Americans who are at an increased risk for acquiring HIV and would likely benefit from PrEP. We know PrEP is about 99% effective in preventing HIV acquisition when taken as indicated. But despite PrEP efficacy and the evident need for PrEP, about 28% of males and 10% of females who could benefit from PrEP were prescribed PrEP in 2020. Increasing PrEP uptake is one of the key goals of the CDC Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative which aims to get 50% of those who may benefit from PrEP using it by 2030. However, we see that some populations are less likely to receive PrEP despite having a PrEP indication. For example, um, although 43% of HIV diagnoses in the United States in 2020 were in Black and African-American individuals, and 26% were in Latinx individuals, PrEP uptake in 2020 was only 9% and 16% respectively in these populations. This contrasts with 66% of PrEP uptake in the white population, which made up 26% of HIV diagnoses in this period. There are additional populations with inequities in PrEP uptake, and this includes people who inject drugs, Adolescents, for example, despite the known high risk of HIV acquisition among youth, those aged 16 to 24 have a PrEP uptake rate of about 16% compared with 30% in those aged 35 to 44 years. Although PrEP uptake is improving in transgendered individuals, it remains suboptimal in this population. And also there are regional disparities as well. The southern region in the United States has the highest rates of HIV, and this region also has fewer PrEP providers. And I will hand this over to Dr. Chu. Thank you, Dr. Strong. Before we turn over to Q&A, we just wanted to recap a couple of notable items. And I think on this slide, I just was hoping to call some attention to a really a paradigm shift in, I think, how the guidelines are recommending that we frame conversations about PrEP. And in the past, there had been some uncertainty and a fair bit of dialogue around the question of what's considered, quote unquote, high risk versus what is considered low risk. And I think as we can see here, the updated guidelines are, I think, trying to just encourage a much more universal, inclusive consideration of PrEP for anyone who's sexually active. And I think it is important, though, to note that ultimately all the clinical decisions that we talk with our patients about, they do need to be tailored to an individual's circumstances and also their preferences. 
And so certainly folks are welcome to refer to this algorithm for a reference if it's useful. And I'll quickly note here that the key details, which I think the CDC guidelines try to draw attention to, at least in this decision tree, is just awareness of someone's sex partner status and whether there has been a recent STI. And for people who have a sex partner who is living with HIV, what is that partner's viral load? And on this slide, we can see that the CDC's recommended algorithm specifically that they developed for people who inject drugs. And I'll go through some implementation considerations in a little while, but I think ultimately we all recognize that this population is one probably that we're perhaps not serving quite the way that we may wish to and that there probably are a lot of opportunities to increase access. And I'll note here one thing, again, that the CDC tried to call attention to is the importance of assessing for sexual exposures among people who inject drugs, since that aspect may not be something that's explored too much in a routine clinical encounter, given that there may be lots of other priorities that providers feel like they need to address. And ultimately, for me, I think one of the take home messages on this slide is that we really could streamline our thinking a lot more when determining whether to offer PrEP. If a patient has disclosed that they've shared injection equipment with someone within the CDC or within this past six months, the CDC guidelines would very much just favor prescribing PrEP. And on this summary slide, the various medication options which have been studied are compared both by guidelines endorsement, but also by the FDA approval and indication status. And it's listed across different sexual exposure types. As you can see here, options that are shaded in green are both FDA approved and recommended for use in CDC guidelines. The daily FTC TDF option, as well as injectable cabotegravir, those are the two which really could be considered for any sexual exposure scenario. The orange highlighting delineates options that are currently off label for use in the U.S., but have been endorsed by some guidelines bodies. And for providers that are in the U.S., these orange options include use of on-demand or 211 FTC TDF for men who have sex with men and also trans women. And for providers outside the U.S., you can see that the European Medicines Agency has granted a positive opinion for use of the depivirine vaginal ring in high burden settings, and the WHO also recommends its use. The red coloring delineates options which are currently considered off-label and also not recommended according to certain guidelines, and there are some caveats as noted here for certain situations. So I'll turn it back over to Dr. Strong to touch on a few other important clinical considerations regarding PrEP options. Okay, so this slide summarizes other considerations when choosing PrEP options, and those include renal, bone, and weight outcome differences. The IPREX study identified a potential decrease in creatinine clearance and bone mineral density with FTCE-TDF versus placebo, whereas the long-acting cabotegravir trials demonstrated that cabotegravir is unlikely to cause renal effects based on its mechanism. So this is a reminder that the creatinine clearance cutoff for FTC-TDF is 60 milliliters per minute compared to 30 milliliters per minute for FTC-TAF, and long-acting cabotegravir does not have a renal cutoff. And then with regards to weight outcomes, the DISCOVER trial demonstrated more weight gain with FTC-TAF versus FTC-TDF. And the HPTN-083 trial, there was initial weight increase with the cabotegravir group versus FTC-TDF in the first 40 weeks, but a similar weight gain later in the trial. And then in HPT HTPN-084, there was an overall weight increase in both groups. And then our next slide is about HIV monitoring. 
In 2021, the CDC updated their PrEP guidelines and now recommends HIV RNA testing for monitoring patients on both oral and long-acting injectable PrEP. So this would be every three months for oral PrEP and every two months for long-acting cabotegravir. Some of the data used to support this guideline update include the HPTN 083 study that identified that HIV detection with the antigen antibody testing was delayed compared with qualitative HIV RNA testing. There was 62 baseline HIV infections in the cabotegravir group and 32 in the FTC TDF group. And five patients in the HPTN 083 trial who received long-acting cabotegravir after acquiring HIV did develop an INSTE resistance. So this just reiterates the importance of confirming that a patient is HIV negative prior to each injection or refill for oral PrEP, and then utilizing the HIV RNA testing in order to minimize that potential delay in diagnosis. So this just brings us to our summary slide regarding key take-home points for PrEP in cisgendered women. First, noting that currently only daily oral FTC TDF and long-acting cabotegravir are indicated as PrEP for cisgendered women. Because of limited data on long-acting cabotegravir in pregnancy, daily oral FTC TDF is still the preferred method of PrEP in pregnancy. And then lastly, long-acting cabotegravir requires injections every two months, and HIV antigen antibody test along with an HIV RNA screening is needed. And I will hand this back over to Dr. Chu. Great. Thank you. So before we head into Q&A, this was really just the last sort of review slide that we were hoping to share. And as I mentioned earlier, this is really regarding specific considerations for people who inject drugs. And for folks that are interested in a little bit more background, we would invite you to check out our previous vlogs and clinical thought commentaries on anything that we've covered today. And so the first point that we wanted to offer here is really just a reminder that the CDC guidelines now recommend that all sexually active persons receive information on PrEP, and this should not at all exclude people who inject drugs who are also sexually active. And then in terms of how we can actually implement PrEP services, there's a very compelling evidence base for incorporating PrEP into programs that are already serving and reaching people who inject drugs, namely harm reduction programs, substance use disorder providers, et cetera. And I would personally make the argument that low barrier PrEP should probably be a model and guiding principle for really almost any PrEP program, but easily accessible PrEP may be particularly important and desired for this particular priority population that I was talking about today. And the final point is that we really want to make sure that all of these really exciting scientific advances and availability of new PrEP medications as they come online, specifically long-acting injectable PrEP, that we don't inadvertently worsen the existing health disparities, health disparities that Dr. Strong already led us off with earlier today in terms of access and health outcomes. All right. Thank you to our faculty for that excellent introductory summary. We've had a couple questions come in, so we can go ahead and get started. What areas of opportunity or improvement related to PrEP access and uptake are there currently specifically for cisgender women? So I will start. I think one area of opportunity to increase PrEP uptake is to incorporate PrEP education more into women's health. 
discussions around PrEP should go hand in hand with discussions around birth control. I feel many cisgendered women are still unaware of PrEP or feel like PrEP isn't for them just because of how PrEP had been marketed historically. And so I think just increasing PrEP education within pri uh, primary care settings and women's health settings. Okay, great. And this same question, what are those opportunities to improve PrEP access and uptake for people who inject drugs? Thanks. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I think it is, it's a challenge. Don't want to try and minimize how many considerations that there might be as we try and move things forward. In some ways, it's really similar to what Dr. Strong mentioned for women. I think sometimes we're just not even having the conversation. And it could be either because we are making assumptions on our part as providers that either this is not something that this patient wishes to even talk about. But I think there are many studies that have actually pointed out that there just isn't a lot of information. And so I think that if we can build off of the successes of the programs that are already effectively reaching people who inject drugs, those programs have created safe spaces. They've created trusted spaces for clients and patients to, to speak with healthcare workers and other types of support staff. So for me, I think it's really about taking a step back and just opening the door to the conversation. Great. And then what are some of the key unanswered questions related to PrEP and PrEP options specifically for cisgender women? Um, I think there's two big ones that I can think of. One being related to FTC TAF. Right now, FTC TAF is not currently approved for use in cisgender women. However, there's some promising pharmacokinetic data from a phase one study, which demonstrated that FTC TAF provided a higher tenofovir concentration compared to FC, FTC TDF, and that these concentrations were achieved faster. And so as a result, TAF may be more forgiving than TDF for use in women with suboptimal adherence. But again, there's more research that's needed there. And then the other unanswered question is regarding long-acting cabotegravir and pregnancy. Pregnant women were excluded from the HPTN 084 trial, but of course, pregnancies still occurred during that trial. So there were confirmed pregnancies and the results demonstrated that there were no statistical difference between the long-acting cabotegravir group and FTC-TDF arms. And then pregnancy outcomes were consistent with those expected in this population. So this data is very promising, although we still need more research. So I would consider that still an unanswered question. And FTC-TDF is still the recommended option for PrEP and pregnancy. Okay, great. And then what are some of the key unanswered questions related to PrEP for people who inject drugs? There, there are probably several. <laughs> I think there may be some lingering questions around the science which anticipate some of the participants on today's webinar might be aware that really there's been only one trial specifically looking at PrEP for people who inject drugs. And that trial, which was conducted in Bangkok, was actually only looking at tenofovir. And so I think there were several sort of lines of connection that were drawn essentially to sort of then bring that forward into the PrEP guidelines here and also in other countries. And I think, again, to me, this is about we HIV transmissions are occurring in networks of people who inject drugs. So I would personally say, yes, the science does need to be there, but the little science that we have, I don't necessarily think that should deter us from offering it or being confident in what it can offer. So I think there are a batch of more scientifically oriented questions and research that can be done. But I would say 
I think the priority really should be on the implementation science part of it. Like, how can we offer it to patients who may want it? How can we start having those conversations? What could we do to support PrEP persistence in people who inject drugs, just because there may be unique considerations? Some of the studies that have been published have also called out attention to the fact that when they talk with patients who inject drugs about their interest in PrEP, many have indicated a high level of interest in the long-acting injectable option. And so I think there's a whole host of questions that could be addressed with, again, implementation. How can we do this well and how can we provide this service to our patients? Kathy asks, is there any concern or evidence for resistance, and I'm assuming she means resistance if an HIV infection were to occur, with the use of PrEP in people who inject drugs? For example, concerns regarding compliance with the PrEP and then resistance at zero conversion. Great question. To my knowledge, we don't have any data or hard evidence that really has tried to answer that question. And I would say that medication adherence challenges are not unique to people who inject drugs. Certainly, I think we we worry a fair bit about how to best support someone's adherence if there were you know, other circumstances that just may be a priority over taking medications on a regular basis. But sometimes it's also around just having access and security of the medications. And so I think for that reason, being able to think through how can we offer long-acting cabotegravir could be appealing because then people may not need to worry about always being able to carry the medications on themselves at all time or being able to have a secure place to store their medications. I think medication adherence challenges can probably for almost anybody that's on PrEP. And so I think if someone is taking the medications regularly, we would anticipate that the medication will be highly effective. And I think there are some considerations with how many doses one could potentially miss without really seeing a drop-off in efficacy. And, And I think there are some unique considerations as an individual patient. But if an HIV acquisition were to occur, I would evaluate that just as I would for anyone, whether it's someone who injects drugs who's been on PrEP or whether someone that they were on a PrEP for a different indication. I don't know, Samantha, what do you think about that? I agree. Again, I think with medication adherence is the biggest play. And again, like you mentioned, it won't matter if it's a cisgendered woman or a person who uses drugs. We just want to make sure adherence is and then proper testing. So even if they were to acquire HIV, are we catching it as quickly as possible? Great. Going along with that, actually, Kathy also asked, is the recommendation to screen for HIV by a molecular PCR assay in all people on PrEP? How frequently is that something that you both are doing in your practices? Because I know there have been some challenges in the implementation of that as well. I can start. Yes. So the CDC recommendation for the HIV RNA is for all PrEP patients. I work in federally qualified health center. So that was a big change for us to get an affordable HIV RNA test available, but we have been able to implement that. I personally still, I personally do an HIV RNA for both my oral prep and for my long-acting cabotegravir patients. However, I do know that there are providers that have only implemented the HIV RNA for their long-acting cabotegravir patients just because of cost or access to that lab. Great. And Dr. Chu, have you been able to implement that in your practice? Similar to Dr. Strong, I also work at a federally qualified health center and it's situated within a large public health hospital. So I actually 
personally have probably a slow adopter in terms of incorporating the viral loads for patients who have been on oral prep. To me, I think there are some questions around what the cost and how much does it add. And I think certainly I, I understand the reasoning for including in it, but I also work with the National Prep Line and we get a lot of calls from providers working in a very diverse range of practices that it's just a challenge, frankly, to be able to incorporate RNA viral load testing for every single patient who's been on oral prep. And so I think it, you really have to look at what your system can accommodate. For some patients, maybe the inclusion of the viral load will add clinical value, and I think then great. But on the flip side, even though the updated CDC recommendations do offer it, if you're at a practice that can't do it, now or maybe even in the future, like I, I still think you move forward with the testing that you have. Ideally, you would have access to a fourth generation and any testing is better than none no testing. I think there are some patients on oral prep who would be totally okay continuing to be monitored with just a, a fourth generation. But if you can incorporate the viral load, certainly the guidelines would encourage you to do that. Hey, Elizabeth has a question about average weight gain on prep. I can take that. Um, I believe the DISCOVER trial showed a median of 1.7 kilograms for FTC-TAF compared to 0.5 kilograms for FTC-TDF, and that was after 96 weeks. But to note, there was still a large range for that weight difference. Do either of you have personal experience with patients experiencing weight gain on PrEP? I can start. Most, if not all, of my patients that I care for on PrEP are on F. TDF. I've actually not needed to switch too many folks over to FTAF. So within my own personal practice, I haven't noticed it as much. I will say though, for people who are on TAF as part of their treatment, if they're living with HIV, I have definitely incorporated weight considerations into my counseling when we're using these medications as treatment. And I do think that I have cared for some patients who have experienced weight gain, either from the TAF, the TAF is in so many of the co-formulations, or whether it might be from integrase inhibitor exposure, which might be less um, less of a sort of uh, discussion, at least with PrEP. Great. Can either of you speak to transgender women using long-acting cabotegravir? Is there, are there any considerations in that population specifically? I can take that one. So no, there's no different considerations with transgendered women for long-acting cabotegravir. Long-acting cabotegravir is approved for all individuals, and there wouldn't be anything specific to be concerned about. Can I follow that up actually with a question maybe Smith, if you're able to reflect on it? Because I think one of the sort of operational or logistics questions that we've heard, at least on the prep line, is what if someone had fillers or injections, and then you weren't really sure where to administer the medication. Has that come up for um, you? Yes, I actually have a patient I'm thinking about right now. Okay. So she actually, so she had fillers. And so we were still able to do the injection on the ventral gluteal site, which is the preferred site for long-acting cabotegravir. And then she's actually getting hip implants right now. So there was a big concern because now the ventral gluteal site might not be available. And so I did speak with the manufacturers about that. And they said, you can do dorsal gluteal if needed. The preferred is ventral gluteal, but dorsal gluteal is okay. For that trial, they did exclude anyone that had fillers. So there's not enough data. But if you feel like you can still access the correct muscle, they're still saying that's okay. It's really helpful. Okay, our next question from Richard. What is 211? Can you speak a little bit about 211 dosing and whether you are recommending that for any of your patients or have any patients that are doing that currently? 
Sure, I can I can try to start that off. So 211 dosing, and thank you for asking for the clarification because I think it might not be a term that universally used, but um, basically 211 dosing is a non-daily dosing strategy that I think has had some evidence looking into its efficacy and then also the feasibility and acceptability among patients on PrEP. So basically it refers to taking two pills of FTDF prior to anticipated sexual encounter and then one dose of FTDF within 24 hours, I think it's after the encounter, and then another single tablet of FTDF in another 24 hours after that. And so I think it's it definitely has a place in the prep menu of options that we might discuss with patients. And I think it has been flagged as maybe being an appealing dosing option for people who can anticipate sexual encounters and who may also have encounters that are occurring less than once a week, for example. And so the thought is that you wouldn't necessarily have to remember to take a pill every day but you would have to remember to take two pills beforehand and then one after and then the, the last, the fourth pill after the third dose, basically. I will say that there's information about 211 out there. So probably as a prescriber, I may be prescribing FTDF for daily use and may not even know that some of my patients may have elected to transition over to 211 dosing. And I think that's okay. We can provide the information about how well it works and what are the pros and cons of that approach, but I'm very comfortable with sort of patients taking the lead on whether that feels like the right option for them. And it's only for men who have sex with men. That's the other important all right, great. And there's there's a question just about availability of long-acting cabotegravir and just pointing out that is not currently available in all parts of the world. So what might go into decisions about PrEP for patients where oral options are really the only options for them? Um, so if oral is options are the only option, you're making a decision. One, again, TDF-TAP is not recommended for cisgendered women. And so your decision would be made for you in that case. Like I mentioned before, you do want to consider renal or bone mineral, mineral density. Those are like the two distinctions between TDF, FTC, and then FTC uh, TAF, and then also the weight, potential weight gain. So I think those are the three things that you might want to consider when choosing between FTC, TDF, and FTC TAF. Also, just to mention, FTC TAF is a smaller pill size, so that might be something to consider as well. Thanks. And just going to say, I think there's a lot of opportunity for advocacy, frankly. So if anyone here participates in that space, at least in the U.S., we're trying to have dialogue around how can we create a national prep program, right? And people pointed out when you've got a pretty high cost that's associated with the newest option to market, which is injectable, is this really going to be feasible? And I think we all can understand that the cost as it is currently creates some huge access issues. And so I think if folks want to advocate for new conversations around that, that, those would be probably very welcome. Thank you. Mark asks, it seems that the rate of HIV infection was very low in the cabotegravir PrEP trials. If you can document that the person has received their dose consistently every two months, monitoring for infection is not cost beneficial. Do you think these guidelines may change after there is more experience with use of cabotegravir in real world populations? I do think they may change over time. I think the CDC was concerned about those baseline HIV infections and then the infections that did lead to resistance. And so I think they're just being overly cautious right now. Yeah. And the other thing I might add, and this is probably a smaller consideration, is that the data that we have available to us is pretty much informed by those trials. And so there may be other 
factors associated with breakthrough infections that we aren't even aware of yet. And I think hopefully with experience and over time, if there are additional factors, then hopefully those will come to light. But yeah, I agree with you. My, my guess is that the current recommendations were really to align closely with what the study protocols were and to just err on the side of caution. Okay. What would you say to at-risk patients that are resistant to starting or even discussing PrEP? I think the first thing that I always ask patients is tell me a little bit more about why they're resistant, what questions and concerns that they have. And then when it comes to cisgendered women, also making sure that they're aware of their risk. I feel like there's a perceived, for some individuals, they perceive their risk lower than it actually might be for acquiring HIV. So making sure that they're educated on what their actual risk of acquiring HIV is. And then giving them the different options. Maybe they're not aware of the injectable. Like maybe they figure... Or, you know, maybe they're just thinking, I don't want to take a pill every day. So no, that's not, that's the reason why I'm not interested in it. Or also side effects, like really explaining what the potential side effects are for each of their options. Because I've had patients that have preferred to do the long-acting cabotegravir because they had heard things about renal issues with FTC TDF. So I think it's really just listening to your patient and seeing what they're questions and concerns are and seeing how we can address those. Yeah, I think that's definitely a key way to approach to trying to unpack a little bit what some of the hesitancy or some where some of the questions might be. And we can also leave the door open, right? So maybe prep doesn't feel like the right thing to do right now for you, but it's always going to be there for you if you change your mind or if you want to come back and talk about it more. Kind of like what we do with smoking cessation. We can mm -hmm. bring it up at every visit. We don't necessarily expect today will be the day, but maybe the next. Right. Yeah, for sure. I like that analogy. <laughs> All right. And then William asks, I have sometimes had reimbursement issues with ADAP patients who wanted to do 211. Have you had these issues? How have you gotten around this? I haven't personally encountered this, but I wonder if William would be comfortable offering some detail around the response that comes through with the decision. Is it because it's considered off-label or just what was the rationale for that decision? While we wait to see if he responds, one thing that I have heard people doing is just writing for a 30-day supply of the medication. And then you and the patient know that 30-day may last longer than 90 days, depending on their activity. And so instead of, because I'm not sure how they're writing the prescription and how it's getting denied, but that might be a solution. Okay, great. Samantha, can you also, as a pharmacist, talk about the role of the pharmacist in PrEP uptake initiation in your setting? Because I know that varies a lot throughout the U.S. and certainly throughout the world as well. Yes. So as I mentioned before, I work at a federally qualified health center and I work under a collaborative practice agreement with our primary care providers. And so our organization does a pharmacist-led prep clinic. So primary care providers are more than welcome to initiate and manage their prep patients if they would like, but a lot of them are very overwhelmed. So if that's not something they want to or are able to do, they can refer patients to our clinic and then the pharmacist is the one that manages the PrEP patients. And so whether it's oral and we see the patient every three months or if it's long-acting cabotegravir, we're seeing them every two months and we are the ones giving the injection as well. And then just to give a little bit overview, each state is a little bit different, but the state of Nevada also did pass a law that allows pharmacists within the retail setting to prescribe PrEP and PEP as well. It's relatively new, so we're still working out all the logistics and billing issues, but that should be something that should help 
PrEP uptake if a patient knows they can just walk into any pharmacy and get what they need. Thank you very much to Drs. Chu and Strong, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.